I'm obviously support pill testing. It should happen. It should be in place. It is effective. It's proven to be effective. It's not the silver bullet. It's one part of a problem, whether it's education about what you're doing to your body when you take drugs. A lot of kids don't know. Most people would think twice. You do want to make sure that your festival is safe and I'm sure the police do play a role in that. What is the scenario I'd like to see that relationship move towards? How would you like to see it move? I would like to see the priority given to it being a health issue. And I think you'd have to look overseas there is pill testing that's been very successful and how that that engagement of stakeholders has been successful because I'm sure this is not the first consideration of a conflict of interest from the police and health and so on and politicians. Yeah. So I think there's a solution overseas. I think we need to look to it. I think we need to do it fucking now. That is music festival promoter, co-founder of Homebake and Splendour in the Grass, Jester Crew. And this is episode 292 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is my show, episode 292 of this show with Jester Crew. She is an Australian music industry heavyweight, a true titan, one of the founders of Homebake, one of the founders of Splendor in the Grass, and is behind so many excellent days that you've had with your mates and so many, so many times where you heard great music. Can't wait for you to hear this conversation. What is this conversation? Well, it's, it's simply a conversation. It's a conversation that's designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's what this show is. Something that you'll hear today will make you rethink perhaps where you are, what you thought you were, what you thought you had, and what is and what can be possible. Um, if this is your first episode, welcome. I'm Osher. I'm sitting outside right now. Um, this is my show. I'm a TV host, an author, a podcaster, a bicycle rider, an electric mobility advocate, a stepfather, a husband, and someone who celebrated this week when I was staying in a hotel that actually had a very, very decent gym. That made me happy. Good on you. Langham Hotel in Melbourne, you're awesome. Thank you very much to everybody that tagged me in an Instagram story this week. I do appreciate that. I do see it. I see it all. Um, when I'm on my laptop on the emulator is when I see it. So I see it about once a day, but thank you so much. It's always super kind when you tag the book or you tag what you're listening. Or it's really great. Uh, it does help a lot when you screenshot the podcast and let people know that you're enjoying, enjoying an episode. Thanks very much uh, for all the great feedback about the Brian Fogel episode. Stoked to get a real life Oscar winner on the show and what a great man he is too. It, it did get me thinking though, what would you like for episode 300? You know? It's, it's coming up. It's coming up fast. It's pretty much the same week the baby's getting born, to be honest. What do you want for episode 300? Who do you want as a guest for episode 300? Think far, think wide. You know, we'll pitch them. Send us your email at gmail.com. Which also makes me think, what would you like from episode 300 on? We've been through a lot together, you and I. We really have. What would you like more of? What would you like less of? Let me know. I'm all about constant improvement. This show's no exception. So please, be in touch. Send us your email at gmail.com. Send me your thoughts. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. I know that a lot of people listening will be heading to Byron Bay for Splendor in the Grass. Now, if you've never been to Splendor in the Grass, it's a, it's a music festival. Like, you know, they have music festivals. It's a lot of people in a field. There's a tent. There's a band. There's a food truck. You sleep in a tent. Da, da, da. You catch a bus there. You catch a bus back. A lot of fun. You wear gumboots. Um, I've been a number of times. I've been with Audrey. Um, it's great. Um, so in honor of that yearly festival that mark on the Australian festival calendar, one of the only annual festivals to still be running for so long. Uh, today's guest is one of the founders of Splendor in the Grass, one of the founders of Homebake before that, the one and only Jester Crow. She is an extraordinary human being. Um, she's a powerful, powerful woman. Got a great, great, um, how shall I put this? <sighs> great opinion. Great learnings, great things that we can all garner from her about what it takes to make, you know, something memorable, something safe. Um, she's got, as far as an event goes, as far as a day goes, as far as your business goes, as far as, you know, she's an entrepreneur, she's a very clever one. She also got some really interesting things to say about pill testing. Um, she's such an inspirational, inspirational person to listen to. And I'm, I'm so excited that she's going to be on the show today. Um, Thank you so much for, for being a part of it. Uh, I hope you come to my kitchen table now um, where I shared a cup of tea and I, I start off with a couple of words of thanks because I just, I just had to tell her how grateful I was for all the incredible times and goosebump moments that I've had because of the hard work that she's put in. So enjoy a conversation here with me and just a crew. Thank you so much for being here. And um, from the, the bottom of my heart, Thank you for being a part of some of the greatest oh. moments that I have had with my friends, with my wife, with complete strangers. Yeah, by right. Creating nice. these events that I can stand in with thousands of people. Frank, ruining my moment, mate. <laughs> oh, um, that is so kind. No, really, because I, I, I've had 
such extraordinary experiences at events that you've put on. And mm. I don't, I'm sure people tell you this all the time, but, and yes, I work in the industry. I worked mm. in the industry for a long time. And yes, I have some cynicism about that because I've just exposure to it for years and years and years and years and years. So but industry. you can never take away what I feel in my body when I think of Daniel Johns walking out in the purple mirrorball suit at mm. Homebake. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I still get, I get teary going, oh, fuck, he's a rock god. Yeah. That was the first time he did that. I was like, oh, you're not the kid who hides behind his fringe now. Oh, I'll do anything you want. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I had that feeling that day, you know, mm. I'm standing next to my friend and then, and, and then watching a, a tent full of people jump up and down to an Australian hip-hop band on a main stage at a festival when I saw Hilltop Hoods at, yeah. at, at the very first Splendour happening up in, uh, watching all my friends come back from Byron from the first home bay covered in mud going, what the fuck was <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, it was wild. That was amazing. Was wild, we, we don't know what happened. Mm. So I'm speaking for a lot of people who are listening, I'm sure. Because really, you've changed so many people's lives by doing these things. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly nice thing to say and people don't tell me that all the time, by the way. And I don't know if I obviously see it that way. I think that to me, I think about what how I would want to see music and the experience that I would want to have and what's important to me going to a festival and I love the energy and the offering that is a festival where, you know, I think ultimately it's about hanging out with your friends and having a good time and everything around it, everything that's there is to facilitate that people experience. I think that's when I compute what I'm doing, I'm most interested in people interacting with each other. And my passion for music has been doing it for a long time and nothing beats that incredible live moment. Mm. It's kind of putting it together and then going, well, if I want to be there and I want to see that band, what do I want to do with my mates? And so that's how I process putting together shows. And as I get older and I get a little weirder or a little quirkier, those offerings and that engagement changes and... Hopefully I'm providing something for people my own age. I'm, you know, almost 50. And then also I am mum, so I have young children and I want to provide something for five-year-olds and everyone in between. And obviously that's changed to when I started Home Bake. I don't know, whatever it was, 25 years ago or whatever. 90, so, yeah. yeah. 95? Mm. 94, 95? Mm. I think I come from it from a selfish place, I guess. When you say that I'm doing all these great things for people, I think I'm really just thinking about what I want. That's okay if what you want resonates with the zeitgeist of what other people are looking for. Yeah, then yeah, yeah. But you are the one that had the, the shit together enough to bring it together. And, yeah, and, you know, the idea that the most important thing really in, you know, I think is about, people's interactions with each other and friendships and families and, you know, it's a great place to get away from your everyday life and just take a moment. Speaking of, of families, your, uh, your, your surname betrays that your family might be from somewhere other than Australia? Yeah, yeah. So um, about 15 generations ago I think some there was someone from France um, <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> that 
infiltrated our family. So there's a French background and my mother is Hungarian. She was born in Germany. Right. So, yeah. And when did she come out? Well, she was born 47 and they immigrated just after the Second World War. So uh, I think early 50s. She was, oh, she was young. Before the Russians hit, right. Yeah. Right. Yep, yep. Because a very similar thing happened in, in Czechoslovakia where my dad came from. Right. So, yeah, they basically did the same thing that they did in Hungary but just like nine years later. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but still from the, the, the rubble of Europe uh, yep. post-World War Two mm. to come to this country of mm. just peace and quiet. It's amazing. I mean, they came, I mean, they're a pretty damaged family and mum hasn't had kind of like necessarily a very easy relationship with them or a very connected relationship with them and I think there was... You know, a lot of trauma that came out of that time that just we couldn't even fathom no. in the privileged way that we live. Not here. at all. Not at all. I, I wrote, wrote about this. I wrote a book and I wrote about because both my parents went through something similar, my mum in uh, mm. Lithuania and my, my father when he had to leave Prague. Mm. And they both kind of had no homes and everything got taken away from them and, you know, mm. people died. And and then they get here and they're like, well, I guess we got to get on with it. And then... But that, that what we know now about trauma and intergenerational trauma would have made us perhaps look at them differently mm. and deal with them differently mm. and try and help them maybe in a better way. Mm. But at the time it was like, you're here, you've got all your limbs, yeah. off to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty like toughen up and get on with it kind of. Yeah, because I guess if your family was, was anything like, you know, I guess the common experience is that, and Audrey's family was the same, they came from Fiji mm. in the late 80s after, you know, things got a bit unstable there politically. Mm. And like, oh, my God, here we are. Look at what's available if we work hard. Let's just work really hard. Yeah. And that's yeah. What yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that the same with your folks? They had that work ethic? It was a, di- it was a different one. Mum ended up being fostered out after a while of her oh, tough. living here. Yeah. Her dad went off to work in rural Australia and her mum just didn't cope very well and she got fostered out and then she ended up in a pretty dysfunctional foster family. So it's kind of, you know, a bit of a life shit sandwich there. Right. For her. And, you know, I mean, it kind of plays itself out now. I mean, she certainly that's not her reality but it's still very much part of her her life and how she processes things. But when you were were kids, you know, with your own family, things like... Pretty together? Different, unconventional. I've got bet. So um, mum and dad separated when I was very young, when I was one. He was a doctor, she's a nurse, and we sort of were in Adelaide for maybe the first ten years. It was a pretty kind of fractious breakup and I didn't have a lot necessarily to do with dad when I was young. So we moved to Sydney and, you know, she's a single mum back in the day was pretty tough and we lived in a housing, grew up in a housing commission place and, you know, it's kind of an eye-opener. You see lots of people's hardship and how tough they do it too. But she was very um, dedicated to providing me with what she didn't have and she worked hard and did the best she could and provided lots of love. Just It was just very, you know, I'd be on going to protest marches and hanging out in kind of different subcultures because that's who her friends were and so an interesting 
upbringing. So she took you to protest marches? Yeah, yeah. What kind of, now, okay, so she's a politically active She was very politically active. I remember us flying down to Tasmania and I fucking can't remember. We must have been. Franklin River? Possibly, yes. And. 83, 82. Yes. She made me wear clothes and plait my hair and so and she said so I'm your sister when we get on the plane because I think she was trying to get some kind of cheaper airfares or something so you know we'd dress to be sisters to somehow qualify for cheaper flights or whatever and we didn't have any money so but you know we were down there protesting the Franklin Dam or whatever um lots of political rallies and Malcolm Fraser was really divisive back in the day so there was, you know, plenty of sort of propaganda for want of a better description around our house. And, yeah, but, I mean, I liked that. It wasn't it was just different to typical Australian upbringing, I guess. Well, yeah, I, I guess, you know, if you come from what the, the history of where she came from, like giving a shit about politics is mm. important because they've seen what it, it happens and they would have heard stories about what happens when you don't. Yes. And when people with the very powerful ideas and the violence to back it up take charge. Mm. If you're not aligned with those ideas, things can be bad very quickly. Yeah. And yeah. they'd seen that firsthand. And I, I saw that in my own parents, you know, I remember seeing them in the, you know, we moved to Queensland and. Well, even back then that was oh, kind mate, of. Under Sir Joe. I mean, it's not dissimilar to where we're heading now, right? It was. It's it was terrifying. Full on. It's, yeah. Kevin Rudd tells stories about when him and the other young Labor guys were meeting at the uni, whatever, UQ, whatever they were, I don't know. Mm. There was a special branch car in the street. Yeah, watching. Following them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like, that's real shit. That really happened. Totally. Like, while I've been alive. Yeah, and friends of mine in the music industry, you know, because they had coloured hair or they were wearing weird, and I say that in quotes, clothes, they would get stopped as they walked down the street because of how they look. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of preposterous to think that, we're kind of doing a little bit of a circle, heading back there. Well, um, let's there, hope not. There'll let's always be not. protest marches. Uh, protest marches are fun. There's, uh, you know, there's there's music, there's shouting. Uh, back then, Peter Garrett probably showed up. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's definitely important to take a position, whatever that position is. Yeah, I think and, be active. Uh, and, and, and it's there's something about it's you know it's not quite a music festival, but there's something about standing in a crowd of thousands of people mm. who are mostly aligned. There's always going to be fr- – I remember going to some protest march and it was about the Iraq invasion in mm. 2003 and someone's shouting about Jabaluka. Like, <laughs> that is important. <laughs> I don't want to take that away from you. Yeah, wrong, wrong, wrong protest. However, <laughs> unity of message is important when you communicate. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly, like, <clears throat> on, 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 on lefty protest marches, there seems to be a multi-message thing. People, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and that – me, I don't know. The fracturing of that is another story, but I feel there's something very powerful about walking and being around those people and yeah, chanting. And absolutely. And, and and feeling that collective idea of well, it changes things. Mm. It cha- you know it it you know you look at Hong Kong at the moment with the huge protests that are going on there. Whether Lamb resigns or not will be interesting, but the fact that that can result, a protest can result in a huge change. It's fantastic. You know, it's important. 
My former Channel V music producer, who now is the big boss of Viacom, Ben Richardson. Oh, yeah. He's an extraordinary man. One day at Channel V when George Bush, after the 2000 election when George Bush, W. Bush got in, mm. I was like, I was just lamenting. Like, how could this happen? Mm. And he said, don't worry. All the best music comes out of Republican governments. <laughs> Protest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And... We think of that, America, right? Music, yes, yeah. Like, so music would definitely been a part of mm. this life that you were growing up into. It did cross my mind, particularly, you know, because of Trumpism and populism and nationalism and, you know, just I haven't seen that in my lifetime that I can remember the divisive, the political divisiveness in America. And here to a degree with Scott Morrison and I kind of, I, you know, I did, I was interested because I work in the industry, about what will come out of this because I think people will have something to say. Mm. I mean, a bit well, exciting. We might not see it for a bit. but I was talking with Dicko about this the other day and, and we were discussing that at the moment probably Briggs is probably the only, like, mm. person out there who's really saying some... Taking a position, yeah. Taking a proper position. Mm. But uh, maybe the economics play a role in that. Mm. Like, there was a time when, the you know, the charts in Australia there was protest songs on the charts. People were buying the records and mm. that was on the charts. But economically, I don't know if you can afford to do that. And I don't know how it works right now or, mm. or why there's less of it on the radio because they were on the radio and there was the videos about it and it was every day, every day I'd be hearing these do songs. You think, do you think um, younger people are more apathetic than like I, I, I don't know, like I kind of feel like a lot of people are just... I don't know, disengaged. I would say that's the case, yeah. I would say that's the case. And I, I would also think that, you know, people have talked about this a lot. I don't know if, how researched it is or how robust this opinion would be that if I like a photo that says something's bad, then I feel I've done my part. Mm. I haven't had to leave my house. I haven't had to change mm. my buying habits. I haven't had to change the way I vote. I haven't had to correct someone for, hey, Matty, it's not okay that you use that word describing that person. Mm. I've just liked a photo and then something in my brain goes, job's done, well done. Yeah, so right. Perhaps there's something there, you know, that, that we don't have that build-up of I wish I could do something, I wish I could do yeah. something, I wish I could do something. Seeing a flyer going, hey, there's a march or hey, there's a meeting or mm. hey, there's a gig, oh, finally mm. I can go and do something. Mm. But we don't have that build-up of resentment and hopelessness. No. Also, and how information's being disseminated, I think, too. Like, a lot of it's online and, like you were just saying, it's it sometimes it feels hard to cut through mm. to, and I, I say that both from, you know, marketing a festival to being involved in the last kind of state election and trying to engage people and connect with them so that they would be more aware about what's going on. It was It's challenging. It's not like the old days where you could street press was easily accessible. Print, print allowed, I think, um, more of a direct conduit to people that I think is sort of certainly more challenging. Well, there was scarcity of, inf of information. Yes, mm. like, oh, it was even growing up in Brisbane, had two different street mags. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right and time off. That was it. Yeah. We didn't have any other way to find out about the local band scene yeah. unless we went to every single gig all the time. All right. And so when you read that, oh, my God, Powderfinger just got signed to Polydor. Holy shit. Yeah. What's this going to – and then – the next week you get the same magazine and there'll be a follow-up article and like yeah. 
that was all you had. And so it kind of increased, it, it didn't dilute the cordial so much. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, it was yeah, a, yeah, yeah. it was, that was all we had as a scene and that's what we went with. And I'm sure the same was for other things, whatever industry you were in. Yeah. But now yeah. there's just not even a waterfall. There's just, you know, there's an ocean yeah, of yeah, information, information about anything you're interested in. And so there's, cause there's, not one source or two sources, there's 10,000 sources yeah. and you actually have to bat them away because algorithms are shoving new suggestions at you every time you open it. Yeah. How can you possibly give a shit about one thing unless you're super, super, war, super focused? It? Yeah, yeah. Focused. And, it, and, and it's interesting because when I was young, I used to, you know, wait till Thursdays when Daily Telegraph put out their music guide and I was just pour over it and go, what's on and what am I going to do this week? And, you know, I'd wait for John Media and I'd work out that one of my favourite bands was playing under another name somewhere. Like trying to find that information now, I see pictures after it's happened on Instagram. I'm like, fuck, I didn't know that was happening. I would have loved to have gone along, but you're just not getting that cut through. It's an interesting, you, you know, your point about um, an information overload or torrent or war is really kind of a very different way for young people to grow up and to try and work out yeah. what's important. Choice paralysis. You're standing at the supermarket in front of 300 kinds of margarine and you don't buy one because yeah. you can't make a choice. Totally. Totally. You know, you've got your phone just barking 50 squillion things at you every hour mm. and then you just don't do anything because it's too hard. It's so much you just end up not doing anything yeah. about it at all. Yeah. So perhaps I don't it's a longer conversation about apathy around action. Um, yeah. I feel what we will get to a point where people who didn't give a shit will give a shit. I hope so. Unfortunately, the trigger point for that might lead, we, it might take a bit for us to walk back from that, but it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I think things will get worse before they get better. So that's, that's quite scary. It is. When you think how that may roll out. For I concur. Look, I, I absolutely concur. And, you know, unfortunately, we are a society that will wait for the heart attack before we change our diet. Mm, mm. You know, we're going, thanks, doc, and then going to order some more burgers right now. Yeah. That's yeah. what we're doing. If that's what it takes, I don't think it'll kill us. It'll change the way we live. Mm. But it's a pity that we have to wait for that. Brave new world, right? Ah, and that is so true because... People quote Orwell all the time. It's like, it's not Orwell at all. It's mm. Huxley and it's right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is right now. And Soma is your phone. Yeah. If you haven't read Brave New World, you need to read Brave New World. Uh, it's, it's, a, a, it's a classic. It's a classic. It's a dystopian look at the future where, uh, as a way of controlling the masses, they are appeased by a drug called Soma, which makes them not care yeah. about anything. Yeah, right. Which is exactly what we've just been talking about for the last 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But obviously something got you to the point where you were like – I've got to have to go see more live music. What was the, mm. what was the moment where you're like, this is something. I like seeing bands live. I was very young. I was a bit naughty too when I was um, – I grew up in Annandale. I went to Fort Street and – So did Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was an interesting school and I think um, in and amongst how I grew up, a lot of the people that mum – was friends. She managed an Aboriginal rock band when I was young and so music was always in our world and, you know, we knew people who made music video clips and who produced films and stuff like that. So music was very much a part of it and I remember I first went to an old venue in Surrey Hills called the Trade Union Club 
and it was in 1986, so I was 16, and I made, I think I was younger than that actually, I made mum take me to see Nico and died pretty. And so then I just started going to the trade union club and to venues either trying to wangle my way. Nico Velvet Underground? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, just sort of started seeing music when I was at school. I was, um, became, through going to shows, became mates with Ray from the Hard-Ons and he used to pick me up from school and we'd talk about music for hours after school and just kind of like started because it was almost like like it was a counterculture scene and I had my school life and then I had my music world. I just met more and more people. They were either in bands or they were working at venues or I worked at a record store. So you just kind of built your network. But I was definitely out there seeing music from a very young age. What was it about being in that club? There's loud, there's cigarette smoke. Hmm. Um, A great performance. I like, I definitely like the live side of music and I think it's interesting because there are paths you can take in the music industry you can go down you work for a label and you know it's a very different discipline to the live aspects so for me I haven't ever worked anywhere but booking booking bands agenting bands booking venues booking festivals it's all been very much about that live moment and being in a pub and it uh, you know maybe maybe a sense of freedom in a space like that with people who are just you know pretty incredible really what what artists do but just feeling like you you know you're very present in that moment there having a really awesome time and it's a it's a performance that will has never happened before will never happen again yeah. with a group of people that will statistically never ever ever gather together again yeah in this space and this exists only in this one moment of time. It could be a shit gig. It could be a great gig. Yeah. But there it is. I'm just trying to think. Like, I, you know, I saw Nirvana four times. I remember that moment so clearly. I saw Prince, you know, like all of the kind of, you know, I saw the Stones play at the Enmore where they shut down, you know, King Street for that particular event to 2,000 people. Like those kind of things where you just feel so lucky that you have the option of being, you know, when you think about what's going on around the world and how most people, a lot of people live, they don't have those opportunities. Mm. It's a privilege. Yeah. I mean, we see a little more now. There are record stores, but at the time, the record store was essentially, again, it was a conduit of discovery. And Mm. you were one of the people behind the counter who... Did you, did you have your own little section going? I did. I started the punk rock section of course you at did. Red Eye Records there you in uh, 1989. So there people were people, – so They came for my punk rock yes, selection. Exactly. So right. exactly in the way that Spotify says picks for you this yeah. week, yeah, yeah, yeah. there used to be in a record store, there was a little kind of section of, of record yeah. bins that had crates in it going – here's what this person from the store likes this week. And I had my stores that I would go yeah. to and I was always pick this particular yeah. person's kind of music because I knew that 
they've always got something I like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, like, go through catalogues finding the most obscure Italian hardcore, you know, like just, you know, and then you'd want gatefold sleeves and you'd want, you know, limited edition coloured vinyl and all those and just the joy. I mean, it's changed a lot, but I used to love pouring over a physical record and seeing how, you know, what messages a band were wanting to impart as well as, you know... And now there's Spotify yeah. and it's a very, very different engagement with it, music. It, it is. It's, it's, and it's, it's no less. I, um, all my music discovery is now through Georgia. Yep. Uh, when, when I jump in the car, yep. I'm like, Spotify. Hit me. What have we got yeah. this week? Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm wearing a Kendrick Lamar hoodie because of Georgia. Yeah, yeah. You know, because, you know, I got out of the music industry basically, you know, you know, I'd occasionally hear a song. I've missed it greatly, but I was nowhere near what I used to be. Mm. Um, I was tied in with drinking and once I got sober, everything had changed. Anyway, now I discover music through her and, man, she's got such great taste. Yeah. Really great taste. I have to discover the Viking metal by myself, but that's fine. I do. Did I you, do, well. do you know, um, uh, is it Sabaton? Oh, that want- we had it download and I saw them in Donington download. Swedish metal, the drummer plays from a tank, like an actual army tank. Of course he does. they shoot um, cannons during their show and they have fire and the singer sings like it's a gun that is kind of like vertical and he sings into the top of a gun. As a mic stand. Yeah. Of course they do. Yeah, yeah. Like it's fucking the most hilariously awesome thing. And that's why I love Viking Metal because it's so preposterous. Yeah. But it's also very musical. Totally. You know, songs about dragons and longboats and shit. And listen to it when I work out and it's really, or when I drive around and I'm angry, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you know, and, you know, obviously Game of Thrones and, uh, you know. I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for a really long time, (laughs) right? I was in a Viking Metal. It all works. It all works. I was in a male team back in the 80s, man. I'm like. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Did, Did you watch Game of Thrones? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. When I met Audrey, the day I met Audrey, I was trying to start a conversation. Oh, did you watch Game of Thrones? That's not. She goes, I've read all the books. It's not, it's not new to me. <laughs> I'm, dream, I'm, dream. A reader. Yeah. Sold. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We were married not long after. Mm. Uh, so to, you mentioned, and you kind of dropped it through there, but that you mentioned that you met Ray. Uh, Rayan from the Hardons, who were a, a super, super important band mm. in Australia, and not only because you know they were they were multiracial and they were you know had this really confronting name at the time, and their artwork was like we can't put that poster in the window. Yeah, it was that you know Which I love. speaking of yeah, great, but you know how conservative I grew up in Queensland, so yeah, you, know, you could get. So you get pulled over if you're wearing a hard ons t shirt, yeah, just because having the word hard on, yeah, 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 stiffy, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, that you were you know, kind of met him, and he's loveliest, loveliest man, yeah, yeah, ever, yeah, um, and super passionate and a, a, a lovely guy, but and, and that you were kind of had that moment there, and then obviously, like, your, your network grew and grew and grew, and you got a job at a record company, a record store, and you met more and more and more people. How did you come to then booking bands when, you know, at the Lansdowne? I had a bit of moxie, definitely, and um, I knew that I wanted to work in the music industry and I wanted to work for myself. I didn't quite know which, whether I wanted to work in management or quite what, so I went to TAFE and I did an associate diploma of accounting because I wanted to understand how numbers worked if I was going to run my own business at the same time as at Red Eye. And then um, I thought, oh, I think I should try and get some 
on-ground experience. So I went and um, called up Rolling Stone and said, oh, do you need anyone to do your accounts or whatever? And they went, yeah, actually we do. Australian Stone magazine yeah, in yeah. Australia, yeah. And uh, so I became their accounts chick when I was there and, you know, I met a lot of people, Viv, Todd Wagstaff, John O'Donnell, Toby Creswell, all of these people that are, you know, still very active in my life and, you know, at the same time I was seeing a lot of music and I had an opinion about what was going on and who was good and who people should see and, you know, I was going out four or five nights a week to see live music at the same time being an accounts chick at Rolling Stone and so I used to pour over drum media every week and uh, there was an ad that came up as a, a venue booker at the Lansdowne and I, and I was like, and Field Trip used to run an employment agency for the music industry. And so I just kind of rang up and said, oh, can I come and talk to you about this? And so I had to convince him and then the Lansdowne that even though I worked in, as the accounts chick at Rolling Stone that I kind of knew what was going on. And so they gave me a crack at being the venue booker there and, you know, I kind of finally felt like I'd, I was working in an area that I was 100% engaged in being able to kind of put. And, you know, it's a little bit brutal because working in a venue is really about selling beer for the venue. But for me it was like, yeah, okay, you know, that's the end game. I know you want to shift beer units. It's a crude way of describing it, but I want people to come and get the biggest crowds to the shows that I can and so I need to make sure I'm booking a venue in the right way. And it was, you know, such a seminal education. And it's uh, there's a lot to it because the apprenticeship model comes into this as well and having – I've played in bands for a long time up in Brisbane and um, I've, we get – if there's five bands on in the night, like the doors at eight mm. – we go on at 805, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you do everything you can to get everyone you know yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right? And there's yeah. five of us. We might and 50 get, friends or 20 friends. Fuck, if we're lucky, yeah. get 20. But you can only do that so many times. Yeah, so, yeah. But hopefully you get your friends to stick around through the rest of the night and you want to hang out. And then at, from the band side of things, then you start meeting the other people as you go further up the bill. Yeah. And then the headliner goes That's on right. at 11 or midnight or whatever. Everyone's playing a 45-minute set. You might share a drum kit, might share backline. But, you know, there's that you're trying to build, 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 build yeah. through the night. It's put on the, you know, but, you know, we, our band, we were this weird funk metal thing. Um, you know, we would never get put on with a, you know, a folk band. So you've got to kind of, it's this kind of night, it's that kind of night. It, yeah. it, it takes you, you know, can't just have one band. You've got to book a bunch of bands together, yeah. right? Yeah, it's funny when you were just saying, you know, and you've got to get all your friends down. That's what I used to say when I was booking the lands down. Hey, so come and play, but bring every friend that you've got because it does get noticed and, you know, that is the passport as you build a crowd and if you're good, it will happen organically, right? Like you'll have your friends that sort of start representing that then swap over into real fans of the band. Hmm. You just need that grassroots support from your friends in the first place. Yeah. And but, mm, but it is interesting because then you find scenes. Like I'm sure you banged around and played with a bunch of bands, whether it's 20-odd bands that you mix and match. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have an audience and there's generally a bunch of people that frequent those kind of shows. Yeah, so, there's a core in, in yeah. Brisbane at the time I was very grateful 
and I still am very grateful that we were playing around at the time. Um, it was right after Powderfinger got signed to a major label, which was unheard of yeah, for yeah. a Brisbane band to not only sign to a major label but to stay in Brisbane. Yeah. Most of the time bands were like, nah, we have to move to Sydney or Melbourne if we want to make this happen. Yep. They were the first band to stay and go, no, we can do this from here. Mm-hmm. And they fucking did and really, really well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I still I'll, – I'll never forget when my phone rang one day and uh, it was JC going, hey, man, I've got this gig. <laughs> can you guys – I want to, you know – you know, booking this venue. Can you can you guys come and play? I'm like, oh, what was it called? It was called the. Uh, he and Paul were doing it together. Yeah, it was um, called. It was in Paddington, in Brisbane, and oh shit, I can't remember. I've still yeah, got a flyer yeah. somewhere, but I couldn't believe that. As a bass player, I'm like, and, yeah. I, and John from Powderfinger's calling me, say, yeah, I've heard you guys are pretty good. Good love you. <laughs> Let me come and play. Uh, I've heard you play fret. Yeah, I play fretless. Well, that must be hard. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you're JC from Powderfinger. Hero. Hero. Um, but, yeah, you're right. And then there was it wasn't this... the Orient, was it? No. I can't remember that the name. That was one that they no, it was, it was well. it was some club. Uh, oh, I can't remember it now. It was a look. It it's was a so blurry weird, isn't time it, to I be was... in a band and then to also book a room. Well, he's still doing it. That's the wild yeah, thing. Yeah, like yeah. he's he's always done that. He's doing this massive thing now with Petiques up in uh, in the valley. Mm. You know, so he's, he's it's not like he's just started doing this. He mm. always knew that mm. that's that's what he wanted to. You know, a part of it. He always yeah. had that business thing, and he's he's always done it. It'll look the name of the venue will come to me. But you're right, a scene does develop, and I think there was with us there was probably around. I don't know, maybe eight or ten bands that were serving this core yeah. group of, I don't know, might have been 1,200, 1,500 people in Brisbane. Right. Yeah. And, you know, those 1,500 people decide where they would go Friday, Saturday night, and we would just form different permutations and combinations of lineups. Yeah. yeah. And people come and see. And they follow you. They go, yeah. okay, you know, you're playing in the West, you know, this weekend. We'll all yeah. come and see you. Yeah. We'll jump in a car and, and, and go. Yeah. So, Lansdowne must have gone all right for you. Yeah, it was, you know, it was pretty, it was brutal. It was, a, you learn, music industry is tough and, you know, things come across your plate that you, I mean, I was kind of pretty stunned sometimes with with stuff. And But, you know, you put it in your arsenal and you go, okay, that's an experience, clock it up, learn, move on. There's plenty of that there. And then one of my old mates, um, Nick Talek, he was working at a, a booking agency, APA, and he was like, oh, Jess, come and work here. And I'd kind of been at the room for a venue for, at about, for about a year and I remember thinking, oh, it's not very long to move on to another job. Oh, okay. Nick convinced me and then he resigned. I went there and he resigned like two weeks later or something. I was like, thanks, Nick. I actually came to work here for you. But um, by that point I, you know, knew a few bands and uh, I knew Powderfinger as mates and I was like, oh, I gave you some gigs at the Lansdowne and now I'm an agent. Um, do you need an agent? And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, all right. And I became their agent and I then just built a roster of picked other bands that I like, like uh, Spiderbait and Smudge and, you know, it was a kind of Sydney scene really, a whole half-cow scene and stuff that I worked with, um, Tumbleweed and so on and just sort of built a roster. Yeah through that process so hmm. and at what point did you think you know this is fun but I want to go and attempt a festival well so I was working still at that point for myself I was about 22 so not for myself for APA and I was um probably good mates with Joe Segg 
and he was he became the manager for Tumbleweed and he was also booking UMI. And so I sort of said to him, hey, I'm not really very happy at this agency. How about we start one together? It's our agency. And so we did, which became IMC Agency. And it's a different game, I guess, when you're making your own decisions about what you want to do and... Um, you know, you live and die by that risk. And so we started doing agenting nationally for bands. Um, Some of my bands when I left APA came with me and we kept building our roster. And then I think it was at a really interesting time where bands like Nirvana was really kind of like the catalyst where some a, a band that sounded like them could be mainstream popular because that had never been the case. And so I remember when um, Bleach came out and then Nevermind. Like I literally remember hearing Nevermind and just having a massive mind explosion. Like it was incredible and it was a phenomenon and it was global. And so these Australian bands that we happened to be booking, like Tumbleweed and UMI and Spiderbait, had this subculture going on in Australia that was, you know, they were actually selling a lot of tickets. They would play on a Tuesday night in Chatswood and there'd be 1,200 people at shows. Like fucking huge numbers, right? But they weren't charting. And then what happened, and it all happened at the Nirvana time, was it's like this total cross where they moved from the alternative underground to commercial mainstream and started charting on commercial charts and selling records. And suddenly they went from selling maybe 10,000 records to selling 70,000 records. And I've never seen it in all of my time since that such a cultural shift for the music industry as that that moment and I think now there's not necessarily that same divide everyone has access everyone can chart you know if you've got an audience and people are interested it's not taboo or scary you know heavy rock bands I've got Spotify I've got my own chart yeah yeah right you know yeah I don't you know my music discovery is so different as I was discussing with you before it's so it's so different as to you know what funnels and concentrates style and and, and performance expectation and, yeah. and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm sure you, you would have been to it. At, there's a thing that comes through uh, every every year called Progfest. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can stand at Progfest and you can stand around people who are singing every single word to, like, this super obscure band from, yeah. I don't know, Belgrade or whatever, and they're wearing four different pieces of merchandise on them. You're like, and there's a 1,000 people here. Yeah. Like, Where did this come from? How did you all know this stuff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's amazing, right? It's incredible. Yeah. It's almost like I describe it, it it's, it's the opposite to it. It's like the first, I, when I did Idol, we would do backstories on people and I once went to one of these people who was on our show and she was at a church. It's quite a big church. There's a lot of singing there. You can do the maths. And I remember <laughs> standing there going, oh, wow, this is all happening and you all know all the words to all the songs and you're all really into it. I don't know nothing about this. Okay. Fine. That's yeah. what it feels like. And yeah. I remember describing it. It was like going to a gig of a band that I don't know. It was like the first time I saw Dashboard Confessional. I had no idea who they were. And I'm like, there's 5,000 people yeah. crying, singing every yeah. song. Yeah. Fuck, what did I miss? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like going to see Bruce Springsteen, which honestly is one of the most 
you know, one of my favourite things to do, it's the fucking Church of Bruce, right? Like there's, there is 15,000 people in that arena that know every single word. They know the crowd cries, the signs. Like there's such a ritual around it. It's but beautiful. You come along yeah. and from an outside you're like, what the fuck? This is, you know, it's bananas. So you managed to put on... I'm guessing the first of, you know, your, your first dance with Byron Bay as a festival venue yes. was Home Bake. Yes. Famously known as Mud Bake. Yeah. Because it rained a lot. Uh-huh. A uh-huh. lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, yeah. a lot. Run and out of town. We were. There's this unfucking believer. I think it's a Tony Mott photo of Silverchair. Yeah. And just, there's just thousands of people just head to toe in mud. It's in, it was insane. Yeah. And yet you pulled it off. Yeah. What, what do you remember about... <laughs> What do you remember about the next day? What do you remember about like, holy shit, we did it? I remember, you know, I actually remember my friend Viv decided to come to that show in a head-to-toe outfit in white. Brilliant. Right, with heels. Great work, Fanton. And I was just like, what the fuck are you wearing? And I remember just being so awed by someone that was about to get wiped out by mud. She left there without a speck of mud on her, I might add. Anyway, so that's kind of like, that's one of my memories of the show, but it was, the weather was crazy. It was like, a you know, people were having the most incredible, it was incredible. They were having an incredible time. It was wild. And I don't think I really, you know, I was young and inexperienced and, you know, I've always had a pretty, my strike can manage stress reasonably well. I'm pretty robust. And so I was kind of like, you know, quite observational about it, keen that everyone got out of there safely. Could never run a show like that again, like ever, like, like it just would have been shut down if it happened now. But then I remember more the political environment the next day because everyone that had mud on them left the show and went into town and left their muddy paw prints all over town and the locals went bananas and they were just like, we don't need this, you know, rat bag audience in Byron Bay and this show will never happen again. And it was in January. So they were like, we've already, we're already busy. There's loads of people coming to town. We don't need you music people with your muddy paw prints. And, and I was just kind of like, they're going, okay, there goes the fucking dream of, you know, a music festival in Byron Bay gone. And 20 years later, you get a tourism award from Byron Bay. Go figure, right? And, um, and anyway, so we moved home back to Sydney because we would never have been able to stage the show in summer there. It just had such a bad reputation locally. But what, sometimes you just get lucky that you had, yes, you had a noisy event, but everyone that went there, as I said to you before, I remember seeing my friends, mm. I had to work, couldn't do, couldn't go. I remember seeing my friends who came back from there, they just, their face was just like, holy shit, it was, fuck. They just yeah. couldn't, like, it wasn't just the mud, it was what happened. It was the people that were in the same place at the same time and the musical combination of what was going on yeah. and that th- there was this, this perfect, just this, so many days had passed since Silverchair had done a thing and there was, was this moment where it was this band at the peak of their powers and this yeah. particular time of the afternoon and the weather was, and it created this moment that everyone just then spread and talked about and talked about and talked about. So now you have this brand name yeah. that represents yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so when Homebake goes on sale the next year, 
people are going to buy the ticket. And they did. And it, and, and it sold out. And, you know, what's interesting, you know, we were both there and we know people that were there. It still stands out as a pretty kind of wild moment. I don't think I've ever been involved with running a festival that was quite as... Um, Free-spirited, for want of a better, that's a generous description, but it it was lawless. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Two things. I'm, I'm, I'm quite conscious of your time, so I, I just kind of want to... I don't want to gloss over the extraordinary things that you've done with Splendor. Yeah. All right. You, uh, Splendor in the Grass 2000 was the first one. You've moved venues from where it was at Blondial Fields. You now have created your own space for it. Like there's such a boss move of, okay, we can't run it there. Fine. We will create a place and we will have it on our own land. And like, that's fucking incredible that you've created this place and it's a space that other people can use and, and so much has gone into the design of that space and, and what makes a festival space great. I was so grateful to take Audrey. It was, you know, we were only going out for about a year when we went and then I got to show her this world that just was my life for so much. Like, mm. no, honey, you're going to need gumboots. Mm. And, you yeah. know, trudging around and, and, like, eating different food and seeing different people and just meeting everybody and just, like, the way the venue's constructed and that you can be on this massive stage here but then because it's not a flat space, you can walk over a hill and not hear the other stage. Like, stuff like that. It's yeah. just I'm sure you did heaps of recce's. But anyway, I don't want to gloss over what you've done there but I think two important things that I'd really love to talk to you about is – when you are, and you mentioned that you could never run that kind of festival again, yet you've run festivals safely mm. since then. Mm. When it comes to booking and as, you know, safety regulations increase, 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 does it weigh upon you to make a safe day for everybody? 100%. Uh, I think that's the most stressful aspect of putting on a festival is you feel really responsible for everyone's well-being when they're there. Stuff can go wrong, stuff does go wrong. But it's probably, uh, you know, uh, at the point that we decide to do an event, it's our number one priority is planning around how we can make sure that we're providing a safe space in a way that people maybe aren't quite aware how safe it is. You put the little barriers in there that they can knock around within and still feel like there's a relative degree of freedom, which I think is important for people to feel like they can still have this experience and they're not confined and restricted by all of the kind of, you know, management strategies that you have. And the rules change on you all the time. Yeah, they do. They do. You know, and I'm, a, I'm definitely... 
I fight hard for what Splendour is. I have to defend it all the time. Whether it's the fact that we have an all-ages show, I want kids to come to the show. I want them it to be inclusive. It doesn't always sit so well with police because they're concerned about children's welfare and I totally understand that too. So, you know, how you evolve as a show to make sure that you're doing all the harm minimisation stuff and you've got all your safety plans in place and you've got good people around you, mm. which we do. Our team is second to none. World class. I've been to festivals yeah. all over the world. And yeah. as you mentioned, the amount of little things as far as safety goes in a festival space, because I've been in riots at gigs. Mm. I've nearly I've watched people around me get, get beaten in riots. I've barely escaped a riot. I've, I was at the Big Day Out festival day. I watched from backstage during the Limp Biscuit set. Yeah, you know, I, I saw it. Mm. Um, I, I, as a punter, you may not realise how horribly bad things can go when, mm. I don't know, you don't, not, not thousands, if 200 people suddenly want to go in one direction and you all don't want to go that direction, things can go bad fucking fast. You know, and not that I can go into too much detail, but, you know, the Falls Lawn show three years ago where we had a crowd crush pretty much exactly what happened and we had 80 people that were pretty seriously injured and, you know, for all the planning in the world and all the experience in the world, sometimes things happen outside of your either expectation or ability to change how people respond when they're in a group environment like that. It is very, very tricky and I, I you know, I, I've experienced it in uh, running festivals, mm. running, there's something, something about being in a group of people, mm. there's something at the back of your brain that suddenly just, you're like a school of fish suddenly changing direction. Yeah. All of a sudden you're running. It's yeah. not the way you want to go, but suddenly I'm going this way. Yeah. And Panic's contagious. It, really is yeah yeah it is and it's super scary yeah when it when it goes down yeah. things like at splendor there's a road in there's a road out yeah uh, like a walk a pathway in and out so people aren't walking against each other yeah. things like that people don't realize that that sort of stuff goes on so i would ask you then about safety where does the personal responsibility of the festival goer come into this well and uh, you know and that's an interesting one we had a legal case recently where we ended up paying out a couple of hundred thousand dollars but it was a woman who'd injured herself she'd broken her ankle or a leg but she was high she'd taken drugs we had medical records that said she had but we were still responsible legally for what her experience was so where are we responsible you know we live in a litigious country i would suggest that most of it is our responsibility certainly in the law courts so it's you know we have to put a lot of rigor into how we um, manage our show all of the mechanics that we have in place we document everything we make sure that when you know if there is an issue that we have done the right thing and we've met our responsibilities yeah it's all you can do and then it's over to the people that go to the show yeah. to not act like dickheads well that's that's the thing i'm kind of interested in exploring in that you know i remember hearing at because in New Zealand they have a very different way of dealing with public liability and I compare mm. the two countries because we, we have a similar, you know, both colonised, we both have a similar development, you know, relying on rural industries to get us where we've got. Um, 
but they have a very different law of public liability that's capped. And that the big day out in New Zealand, you could zip line across the mosh pit. Mm. All right? Yeah. And, you know. Like now? There's a point. But there was a point where, like, and if something were to befall you, well, then you zip lined across the mosh pit. Yeah. Son? Yeah. Okay. This yeah. is the limit of how much the payout will be if there is a payout. And, 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 but here it's, it's very, you know, I wonder what we are losing as a society by taking that personal responsibility away from us okay. and putting it upon wherever we choose to be outside of our home. It, it's in, it, Yeah, and it feels like, you know, in the same way, I mean, I have this debate with the police around drug dog operations and they get really heavy-handed at the festivals and they wanted to, anyone who was found with personal use, they wanted to get us to cancel their tickets to the show. And I was kind of like, well, no, because they've already been punished with a fine. They're going to have to turn up at court. If you were walking down a street, you were going to a pub what are you going to you going to find them for pot for instance for finding some personal use but what then you how do you what do you do after that you what are you going to stop them from going into a club no you're not because your remit finishes at that point but at the festival you want us to cancel them coming into the shows so there's kind of like um there's almost like there's allowances for what you're allowed to do in your real world and then when you go to a festival it's like it's a different world it's like people don't necessarily take responsibility for the idiot things that they do police are trying to hold people responsible for their behavior in an unreasonable way it's a really interesting conflict and yeah place to try and make everyone happy which is what our job is is to make the police happy and to make the people that come to the show happy and yeah yeah that's what we do yeah. I've recently spent some time with someone who has smoked cigarettes all their life and uh, I was in a ward of uh, people who had done the same. And to describe to you the sound of those people trying to breathe, gasping. Yeah. All right? I can't, but you can imagine it. And I, was, I sat there and I'm like, the fuck can you buy this shit over the counter at a servo mm. but we are saying, no, you cannot test a pill at a festival. Like mm. something is really, really, really wrong, mm. really wrong yeah. that that is the case. Mm. You know, you'll put a breathalyzer in a pub so someone can check themselves before they leave the pub so they may not get behind the wheel, mm. but you won't allow a similar decision to be made around, you know, I just, it boggles my mind. I, you know, and I've been quite involved, obviously, the recent spate of deaths, drug-related deaths at festivals and the political football that that has become and what you ultimately have, and it's a little to what I was just talking about before, is there is a conflict between the punishment mentality of you're taking illegal drugs, you should be locked up, it's a criminal act, versus a social issue You've got this really fucked up kind of dynamic that's out there at the moment where the Department of Health 
see it as a health issue and it is it's a and it's a huge social issue that's that's going on and then the cops just want to arrest everyone and so you have this very fractious unsupportive thing and that's why they won't allow pill testing because the cops are like we're condoning it our if we accept pill testing on site that that is fundamentally against everything that we've been trained to do and it's you know it's so messed up because it's not a criminal issue. It's people who are having some serious problems with substances, substance abuse. Yeah. And it's a lot of people I think are they're quite confused about what pill testing is. Mm. The very first thing, like, hey, you don't get the pill back. Yeah. The first thing they say to you is, well, number one, we recommend you do not take this. Mm. Most people <laughs> most people don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And number three, here's what you thought was in it. Here's what was actually in it. Yeah. All right. Say, for example, the regular, like a dose, I think it's for men, you need 70 milligrams of MDMA to feel the kick. For women, it's about 90. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, no, other way around. Yeah. So men, 90, women, 70. All right. This pill has at least 240 grams in it. So mm. it's a quadruple dose. Mm. All right. For you as a woman, you, you really, really, really shouldn't do this because yeah. that will overdose you. Yeah. All right. And... You know, it's, 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 pill testing isn't here, this is good, take it. It's an opportunity to engage with a counsellor and for someone who is, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. Mm. And it's an extraordinary moment to intervene, mm. you know, and mm. that you wouldn't allow that. Yeah. It, it blows my mind because having been on tour with a festival when someone did die, which was Jessica Mikulik, and then done the shows after that and been around it and seen the way, like, it is horrendous for everybody, everybody mm. that someone, nobody wants anyone to have come to any harm at their gig. Mm. Nobody, nobody, mm. nobody. Mm. And when I see the reaction of like, if they want to take it, that serves mm. them right. <laughs> nobody. Yeah. No, it's not. You know, I can go, to, I don't drink, mm. but I can go to the bottle shop 300 metres from here and I can buy enough vodka to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. Legally, yeah, it cost me fifty bucks. Yep, I could drink it in forty-five minutes. My liver would liquefy and it'd be over. Mm. All right, and that's legal. Yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, because the barrier is the police, because they're seeing it purely as a criminal issue. That is, you know, that's what's so fucking messed up about it. And you know, it, it's interesting. People, kids aren't drinking as much, and they are taking more drugs. That's really what's happening. They're cheap. So there's that, you know, just that cultural shift and change that's yeah. happening, which I think is why we're seeing it's um, such a big issue. Look, I I'm obviously support pill testing. It should happen. It should be in place. It is effective. It's proven to be effective both here and um, overseas. It's not the silver bullet. It's one part of a problem, whether it's education about what you're doing to your body when you take drugs. A lot of kids don't know. Um, I've seen some pretty horrendous stuff in the medical units. It's awful to watch. And I'm sure those people, most people would think twice about how they're going to have a good time. And I think there's a whole big piece around responding to what is becoming a, a pretty huge social issue, a health issue. You obviously also, you, you do want to make sure that your festival is safe and I'm sure the police do play a role Yep. in that, what is the scenario I'd like to see that relationship move towards? How would you like to see it move? I would like to see the priority given to it being a health issue. And I think that somehow, and I think you'd have to look 
overseas um, where there are there is pill testing that's been very successful and how that interaction or that engagement of stakeholders has been successful because I'm sure this is not the first consideration of a conflict of interest from yeah. the police and health and so on and politicians. Yeah. So I think there's a solution overseas. I think we need to look to it. I think we need to do it fucking now. <laughs> do you reckon we'll get it done before summer? <laughs> no, I don't. You know, it's interesting. There's a coronial inquest that's about to start. There's lots of... Look, there's lots of eyes on the process and lots of engagement. So on, well, a coronal inquest of one of the people that passed away on, and one of the... On all of them. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, they've got it all at once? Yep. They're doing a coronial inquest into it. And out of that will come some recommendations for how to move forward. So that will be really interesting, I think. And I do think, you know, I would like to think, you know, you, you, you go to America and there are states in America where smoking pot's legal... I feel like Australia needs to step forward as a modern, contemporary, forward-thinking country and make some changes and start considering drugs in a different way. And that are that it's not just that they're illegal, it's the impact they're having on people's lives and how we need to do something to change that. Yeah. You, I mean, I, I, could, I could really and talk... And alcohol included. Alcohol included because, you know, I've, I've seen uh, you were in the music industry at a time before CCTV cameras. I was in the music industry at a time before CCTV cameras. I've seen the relationship since there was a massive overhaul of the security industry. Mm. I've seen a humongous change in what, in violence at gigs and everyone kind of getting this shit together mm. a lot more mm. Mm. around violence at gigs. Because mm. it used to be fucking intense. Yes. And I'd yes. play gigs and we'd do gigs in places like Toowoomba and it'd be like, Fuck yeah. me. Yeah. You hear about this shit like, oh, this is like that cold chisel song, you know? It's yeah. just like a fucking bloodbath in the front bar. And a lot of it is fueled by alcohol too. Yeah. You know, like they're, you know, Australians as I think as a country have a problem with their booze intake. And I don't mean, I mean, I drink. I fucking love great red wine. Bring it on. But it's, it's at the root. Uh, it's very destructive. It's at the root of a lot of, you know, I mean, even the one-punch lockout laws that have shut Sydney down. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's all around alcohol. Coming to the Gold Coast, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we just need to have a better, better relationship with ourselves and what we put into our bodies, whatever that is, however that all happens. Yes. Yeah. Does it come down to the question of, you know, the personal responsibility of... Okay, I'm the person that drank these ten beers and three shots, and then I did this thing. Therefore, I'm the one that's yes. responsible for it, not the person that served me the beers. Hundred percent. Yeah, but that's the crazy world we live in here, right? <laughs> like, just litigious. It would be difficult, I think. Not impossible, but difficult to change our relationship to alcohol. I've been, you've been to countries that have yeah. a different relationship to alcohol. I remember the first time I went to a country that had a different relationship to alcohol. I'm like, hang on, everyone's just, we're just all. Here? Just growing up. And, and no one's just munted. Yeah. No one's fighting each other. We're all having a beer. We're on the beach. But no one's, oh, wow, it can be like this? Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know that it could be like that. Where I, you know, how I grew up is like if people are drinking, there's danger. Mm. 
But it doesn't have to be like that. Mm. It's a, you know, I mean, we're a convict nation, really. So I think it's deeply entrenched. Can we still call ourselves that? Mm. We're a nation of immigrants, mate. We are. We More are. More people born offshore than onshore. I think they probably, you know, brought us all here to lock us up. But I do think that um, it's interesting. There's a lot of data that says that alcohol is generational and it's less important to younger people. It's less a part of their lives. Less, yeah. less people are drinking. So I think... I've, I would like to think that there's a natural of uh, people making more mm. positive decisions for themselves. Who's well. your, what, what's your ideal festival goer behaviour? If you're going to go mm. a festival, what would you like? Who's like, you know what? You can come back anytime. They would, I think, uh, buy a ticket because they want to see a couple of their favourite bands. They would be going for the music, but when they got there, they got caught up at the forum because there was a cool conversation or they decided to, you know, craft or they got sucked into a part of the festival that they didn't come for but that just completely inspired and engaged them and they missed all of the bands they came to see. That's my ideal punter. Yeah. Because I kind of go, well, fuck, that's, you know, you were really excited. You bought a ticket to see the bands, but you didn't actually see any of them because you were having such a cool time doing other things. Yeah, and that's what you went for. That's that's kind of like for me. I, I feel like I have ticked a box yeah. um, as an organiser if that's what happens with somebody. Yeah. And how do they interact with other people? The, they, are, they have a big smile on their face and they're warm and generous and tolerant of other people. Which is... The thing that, you know, I remember about early Livids festivals that I went yeah. to up in Brisbane, it was like, oh, wow, oh, I'm here among all these. I yeah. thought I was the only one that had hair this long. Oh, no, you have it too. Oh, wow. Oh, you're the person I saw at that show. Oh, you're the, here we are together. Oh, this is back. You don't really do yeah. this anymore. It was like, I just fell on the ground dancing to this band and you pulled me up. Thank yeah. you. And, and, and to that, I have to say, one thing I love about Splendour is our audience is that they generally, we have such a low level of aggression at the show. Everyone's very kind and respectable. They're excited about being in the space and for their experience and they're really generally great people. Like I feel very lucky that we have a really amazing audience. I'm just excited to use your super incredible composting toilets. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. They're really it's amazing. Achievement. You went to a lot of effort to get them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two and a half million dollars worth of toilets. Yeah, but they're yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we deal with all of most, I would say out of those, 100% of our waste is dealt with on the property. We're not shifting anything like it is the dream of sustainability and you know baby steps but now that we've got permanency lots lots oh, to do amazing so yeah. you mentioned it before but i i am interested to what other people might be able to learn from how you do it okay to, to say that your day is just dealing with problems would be an understatement Mm-hmm. All right. Particularly as you get in the day, and I have the friends that we know, and having been on site days before festivals, when mm. I, you know, come to pick up a pass from Jade or whatever, because I'm so fucking privileged, I still get to have something with a laminate on it, even though I haven't worked in the music industry for a long time. Oh, not at all. The stress levels just increase, 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 yeah. increase, increase, and then show day. It's almost like this, this thing. It burns so hot. It's like this white heat of decision making yeah. that has to happen. Every second of every day. Yeah. How do you manage that level of stress? I think that I internalise it a lot. I try and manage it myself. I think I 
as much as I can, I make a conscious effort to smile and be cool so that my stress is not infecting everyone else around me. And so I focus quite a lot on managing that process sometimes. <laughs> it doesn't always work out like that and I'll blow my stack over something. But generally not. And I think that when you're working in a stressful environment and everyone's working long hours and they're tired, to be kind to the people that you're working with and to make sure that everyone is watching their P's and Q's and being tolerant of you know, maybe someone not handling their stress so well is a really big part of our culture. It's kind of like, let's just fucking have a good time. It's hard work. Let's try and smile and have fun and be idiots through it. And that's what we kind of do. It, it, workplace culture is, is so important because yeah. it is the, it's the lubricant that helps the grinding gear yeah. when, when things are hard, when things aren't going your way. Yeah. That's what is so important. And and, yeah, there's a lot of romance about what it might be to work at a festival, but the reality is you might get three to four hours sleep for the 10, 12 days before the event. Yeah. And then, you know, you might stand at an after party next to someone that was on the main stage. Yeah. All right? But you yes. won't ask them for a photo because that's unprofessional. Yeah. And you know what? Like everyone's like, oh, your job must be so great. You get to meet all these rock stars. It's like, yeah, actually, you know, I could – I actually don't give a fuck for starters. But also – you know, you just don't because I'm probably out directing cars in the car park, making sure we don't have a traffic issue. You know, like it's extremely unglamorous. <laughs> <laughs> I have been stuck in one of those. It was, uh, it was when it was right after Big Day Out went massive and then the old guard, Chuggy or somebody else, similar couple or someone decided to Alternative Nation, it was called. Oh, yeah, that was Frontier and Kinski yeah. and Chuck. They were like, we can do this too. And I remember just being stuck at that. traffic jam in Brisbane for like, we were in traffic jam for three hours trying to get out of the car park. Yeah. 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 It was a shitty day. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that's kind of, you know, for me, my KPIs at a show are that everyone gets in smoothly without having to wait too long, everyone survives makes it through safely, and then everyone leaves without it being too much of a trauma. Like, that, that's kind of like success. That's what success looks like to me. There are a few things in life as good as a spontaneous bus home from a festival sing-along. Yep. Which I have been a part of many. Yes. Uh, up in uh, the northern rivers of New South Wales. And I think my favourite was uh, we threw out Mr Big's Be With You once. <laughs> 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 and we were going, and we were like, just to be the one to oh, be. And from the front of the bus we heard, be with you. <laughs> Someone in the front of was the bus. Was that like, like just a general public Yeah. No, bus. no, this is a bus home for the festival. You know how yeah, you get right. your ticket, you can get a bus yeah, in and yeah, bus yeah. out. Yeah, like it was a public that. bus. It was hilarious. Awesome. It was a spontaneous moment. It was just, yeah. just the greatest. You mentioned that, you, you know, you've got, you've got little ones. You are, a, you know, you're still a politically active person, getting more and more so as, as you know. As I get um, older. As things go along, yeah. what kind of festival do you want your kids to go to? Huh. It's an interesting question, isn't it? I want them to go to a festival that's safe, that allows them to have a break from everyday life, that you can go there and feel like you're in a little world and, you know, forget about all your day-to-day -day stresses. One that offers, I mean, art for me is really important that has a strong component of art that I'd like them to be exposed to. 
and music and food and culture. So I guess like a culturally engaged festival, whether that's a dark mofo, um, vivid, splendour, but that they, you know, it's not the background for them to drink and take drugs and have a good time, that they're getting something out of it that helps them, that adds colour to their life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said at the start, I can't thank you enough for the work you've put in that has allowed me to have moments like that with people that I love. Yeah. Nice. It truly, it's just something else. Well, it's lovely to hear and I feel like that was my goal, was for what you're experiencing and that is... um, yeah, means a lot. So thank there's you. thousands of children walking around whose parents met at your gigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah it's, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I don't think about it, but there are. Like, we've had people getting married at the show. Yeah. yeah. The best. So, yeah. But uh, they're important. Festivals as a cultural experience are important worldwide, whatever they are. Food festivals, you know, they're all shapes and sizes. Well, I know you're only a few weeks out, so all the best for the coming weeks. Thank you. You coming up? Uh, No. (laughs) Ah, No, you haven't, yes. We're having a baby. Okay, fair. That that is a good excuse. How how young's, at what age can we bring a baby along? I reckon I probably six months plus. There's a, there's a little splendour, so there's places to be. It's pretty, I mean, and you'd only go during the day. It's pretty harsh environment. For like it's, it can ones, get cold yeah. and it's yeah. noisy. Oh, and, no, I know, I know, and dust. Yeah, mm-hmm. but toddlers, I reckon, are great. You Which would be great because G will be 17 by then. Yeah. But she won't want to go anywhere. anywhere no, she'll be, she'll be at splendour. You know what we'll do? We'll lure her with the VIP camping. <laughs> there you go. And then you say, and then at this time you are on childminding duties. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, oh, no, 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 no. Just like that's how we'll get her to come with us. She can yeah. do whatever she wants. Be like, no, but we'll be in the campsite that's closer. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've got to lure your kids with the thing that they can't afford. It's funny. It's funny because as your kids get older, their relationship with the festival changes too, right? Like suddenly am I going to be chasing my kids around while they're trying to neck you know, a beer, try, you know, and I'm like, you guys have a responsibility to represent well, but yeah. they're kids. They're going to they're gonna blow the system, I'm sure. Look, and all we can do is to be there for them and help them process it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Because uh, you and I, have, we've all seen the people that were locked down and then suddenly they, yes. they get loose for hours Yeah, and then... They try to take everything and do everything at once and it just explodes. Yeah. yeah sometimes yeah. really, really, really badly. Yeah. So we can't do that. Just got to be there, guide them. Be there, anyway. guide them and just be there for them, help them process what goes on, help mm. them take responsibility for their actions. Jess. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> I like it. Thanks, Osho. Appreciate You're your time too. Thanks. Oh, I'm so grateful. All right, I'm going to take your photo real quick. Okay. That was Jess DeCrew. Uh, she is one of the founders of Splendor in the Grass. If you're going to Splendor, it's already sold out, but have a fantastic time. Um, if you're not going to Splendor, maybe plan for next year. It'll still be there. They bought the parkland, so they can do whatever they want. <laughs> They're a total boss maneuver, total boss moves buying that parkland. Those guys are incredible. Um, 
thank you so much for listening and uh, I really appreciate that you, you listened to the show today yeah, the best thing you can do if you enjoy the show is to tell someone about the show that's the very best thing you can possibly do and um, rate, review, subscribe wherever you can rate, review and subscribe that'd be bloody perfect big thanks to everyone that made the show today Andy Ma my audio producer Rachel Barrett my show producer my producer of life um, who had a birthday last week happy birthday Rachel and um, Mike Mills also known as Toehider who made all the fantastic music that you heard today thank you so much for listening Uh, until we speak next time sleep well and dream of beautiful things hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.